0: Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. All be seated. Good morning. Uh, first, happy Thanksgiving to everyone. Right after the service, we will share a meal together. This is our way of thanking God for all the blessings that we have received. And uh, all you have to do is to exit this door and follow the crowd because everybody's going there. There's a room that's prepared for us. where There's a lot of sumptuous food that's enough for every one of us to share. Now, Speaking of Thanksgiving, did you know that it's only about the, the celebration of Thanksgiving only became a national holiday um, in the last 250 years. From 1621 up to 250 years, it was not celebrated every year. It only became a national holiday since 250 years. So, when I was in the seminary, I took the course of church history, and we talked about the, you know, the religious persecution in England. There was uh, these Christians called pilgrims who said, we want to be free. We want to worship the way we want. So they decided to go to America through a ship called Mayflower. And when they came here, they landed in Massachusetts instead of Virginia, and they encountered a harsh winter. Of the 130 souls aboard the ship, only half of them survived. The other half died. And what made the difference is that there's a group of Native Americans who helped them survive and gave them food so that half of the survivors on the ship was able to make it. So the following year, after their harvest, they celebrated with thankfulness of all that God has given them, their survival, and they call it thanksgiving. The reason for the first Thanksgiving was because of God's faithfulness. That's the reason. It has a religious connotation. So I asked my son the other day, I said, J. Mac, what's the meaning of Thanksgiving? And he gave me a very textbook response. He said, you know, 1621, Mayflower, the pilgrims, religious persecution, Massachusetts, you know, they survive. Happy Thanksgiving. But when I asked him, what's the meaning of thanksgiving for you personally? He said, I'm thankful for God, for my family, for my friends, and for having a good life. I mean, at least it's having a good life. (laughs) My daughter, on the other hand, she's four years old. She must have an opinion in everything. So I also asked her. And she said, because God tells us to be thankful. Interesting. We know what Thanksgiving is for. We know the history of Thanksgiving. But people are having a hard time remembering that Thanksgiving is about the blessings of God. It's about the faithfulness of God. There was one survey that made by status. They asked about 1,000 Americans all over the United States randomly the meaning of Thanksgiving. About 67% said Thanksgiving is about being thankful because you have a family. says it's about the meal during the thanksgiving. 18% says it's about the history of thanksgiving. It's about the faithfulness of God with the pilgrims. Only about 80%. Why? There's a very simple reason. Because it's easy to forget. 1621, 2023, that's 402 years. It's easy to forget. So today, I want to talk to you about something more basic, something that we already know, but we always take for granted. It's the conscious act of remembering. It's important to remember. If if there's anything that I want to say for the next 30 minutes, it is this. Our survival depends on our ability to remember. Let me say that again. Our survival depends on our ability to remember. I know this is a loaded statement, but let me unpack this for you. And my prayer is that as you listen to the sermon today, I pray that God will speak to you in a very personal way. We know the story of Exodus. We've been preaching about that. So the Israelites went to Egypt. They got stuck there. They had trouble. They asked God. God came to the rescue. That's the story of Exodus. And the first thing that God did was to call on a person by the name of Moses to become his spokesperson. There was this conversation between Moses and God, and the conversation goes like this. Exodus chapter 3, verse 7 and 8. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out out of the land in a good land and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and money and honey and honey. All right. So I want to make sure we all get this. This is a conversation between God and Moses. God is telling Moses that he has seen the affliction. He has heard their cries and he's concerned. And therefore he has come down to rescue. If there's anything that I want you to get from this passage, it's this. When you read the Bible, when you read about Samson, when you read about David, when you read about Paul, we all think that the main protagonist in the story is David and Samson and Paul. That is not true. The main character in the story is God. He's the one who rescues the people of Israel. He's the one who hears, of seen, who's concerned, and he has come down himself personally to rescue his people. So that means at the end of Moses' life, he cannot, he cannot sit back and say, Moses, you did a good job. You led the people out of Egypt. You made tremendous success. Good for you. He can do that because at the very outset, God has told them that he has come down to rescue the people of Israel. It's not Moses. It is God himself. God came to the rescue. You see, this conversation between Moses and God falls into place because the first thing that Moses asked was about his qualification. Chapter 3, verse 11. Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? What is Moses asking here? Moses is not really asking. It's a rhetorical question. He's saying, I'm not qualified for the job. Because the job is to speak to the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh, and command the king to release all the people, all the Israelites from Egypt. What he's saying is that he's not qualified for the job. He has no credentials to command the king to release the people of God. He's telling God. And I think what Moses is doing is that he's trying to manage God's expectation. God, I know what you want me to do, but I can't do it because I have no credential. This king will not listen to me. Now, what's interesting here is that Moses during this time has been a shepherd for 40 years. He was with the mountains. He was commanding sheep and goats instead of armies. What's the implication here? The implication is that God, by asking Moses to go, is making it abundantly clear that Yahweh is the Savior, not Moses. So if the first question was to demonstrate who is who, who is qualified for the job, and Moses knows he's not qualified for the job, who is that qualified for the job? He's now going to give it back to God. And he's going to say, you are qualified for the job. But are you? Are you qualified for the job? This is what he said. Verse 13. He said, Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? You know, see, in the ancient Near East, the power of the God, of a God, is linked to his name. His name says his power. So the question of Moses really is that who are you? Are you powerful? So, what he's saying is that if I go to your people and tell them your God will rescue you, they will tell me and ask me, What's your name? Because God's name is tied to his power. What, ask, what Moses is asking is, Are you qualified for the job? What is your superpower? Well, we know, you know, super friends, you know, Wonder Woman, Superman, and Batman, they, they all have their own superpowers. What Moses is asking is, What is your superpower, God? Who are you? What is your name? That's what he's asking. Are you qualified for the job? Why? Because in Egypt, there are hundreds of gods. And Moses is trying to ask, are you qualified to defeat all the gods in Egypt? Who are you? What's your superpower? And you know what God said? My name is I am. (laughs) Yeah, I am. And it doesn't make sense in English, but in Hebrew, that word, is translated as to be. My name is to be. But what does it mean? I am or to be means God is uncreated, self-existent, eternal, infinite. Let me say that again. God is self-existent, uncreated, eternal, and infinite. This is what it means to be I am. What that means is that God is powerful beyond measure. And therefore, he can defeat all the gods in Egypt. So fast forward. God came to the rescue. Israel was free from Egypt. God defeated all the gods in Egypt, including Pharaoh. Israel came out of Egypt, crossed the Red Sea, went straight to the wilderness. And for 40 long years, the Israelites were provided with everything, with food, with water. Their clothes didn't wear, their sandals didn't wear out. They were protected from the enemies. For 40 long years, God has been faithful to them. But you see, the desert, the wilderness, is not the final destination. That was not the promise of God. The promise of God was the Holy Land, Canaan. That was the promised land. So after 40 years, they were trying to make the final push. And God told Moses, you cannot come. I mean, he was been the leader for 40 years. But then God said, this time you cannot come. So Moses wrote his farewell address, his last sermon to the people of Israel. This is second generation. And this is the whole book of Deuteronomy. But I want to share to you first Deuteronomy chapter 8. He begins here. And he said, Deuteronomy 8.2, Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. Now, I want you to pay attention to the words, God led you all the way to the wilderness. Am I hearing it right? God led them all the way to the wilderness. Now, I'm going to show you a map. In this map, you will see Egypt. You will see also up north is Israel. There are two roads going to Israel one is going to the way of Horus or the way of the Philistines, which is a lot shorter. And the other one is the way to the wilderness going to Sinai which took them 40 years. Now, what's interesting here is that God led them all the way to the wilderness, not to the promised land. They were stuck for 40 years, which means the wilderness route was intentional. Are you listening? The wilderness route was intentional. The question is why? Why is it intentional? The answer is in Deuteronomy chapter 8. It says, to humble you and test you. Now, why does God want to test the Israelites? Why does God want to humble them? You know, there's only one very simple reason. It's because it's easy to forget. It's easy to forget. You see, it's easy to forget what we can and we cannot do. It's easy to forget that we cannot and God can. When the Israelites have arrived in that place, it's easy to forget their mission. It's easy to to focus on their own ambitions and own dreams and own achievements. It's easy to forget God. This is the reason why God led them straight to the wilderness intentionally to test them and humble them. Let me give you one principle here. The shorter route is not always the best route. Let me say that one more time. The shorter route is not always the best route. Chapter 3, verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country. That's a shorter route, though that was shorter, for God said, if they face war, <clears throat> excuse me, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea, and the Israelites went out of Egypt ready for battle. This is a very interesting read. Like I said, the route to the wilderness was intentional. It was a longer route because God wants them to humble them and test them. But the last statement is very interesting. The Israelites went out of Egypt ready for battle. Folks, the Israelites have not seen any battle. They have not experienced any battle. They were armed for battle because they thought they were ready for battle. But they're not. They've not seen war. They've been slaves for 400 years. They've not experienced war. They thought they can But they're not. God knows them. God knows what they can handle. And so God decided to lead them on a longer route, to humble and test them. You see, if this is true with the Israelites, I believe this is also true with us. I believe that it is also true with us how God deals with us personally. Let me me say this. If you're single and you've been wondering why it's taking God a long time, why it's taking you a long time to pray for a future partner, <clears throat> if you're single, you could, be, you could be asking this question. Could it be possible that God is taking you on a longer route, not because he's mean, but because he knows what you can handle? It's if the goal is simply to bless you, then it would have been easy for God just to give what you need. With, if, if the goal is just to bless you, I mean, if you pray right now and God will say just yes, I mean, that, that's cool with God. The Bible said nothing is impossible with God. He can always give you what you want. But the question is, will every blessing make you a better, more obedient, godly person? Will every blessing bring you closer to God? And the obvious answer is... No, it doesn't always work that way. Why? Because it's easy to forget. Now Moses warns them to be careful not to forget God. And then he explains to them that the full 40 years in the wilderness was a test to humble them. But when we hear about tests, we think about exams. It's like something, you know, that we have to pass, exams. But you have to read this in context. What's the context of that? humbling for 40 years. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 5. He said, Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. So the test is a discipline. It's not an exam. It's a program. It's a training. The purpose is not to make your lives difficult. The purpose is to prepare you for the future. And the same thing with the Israelites. They were being prepared for 40 years because they were not ready for it. So here's the thing. So if you haven't met your future partner yet, I'm not going to look into the singles. If you haven't received your promotion yet, if you haven't reached your dream yet, if you haven't received that most coveted prayer quest yet, it doesn't mean God is, has forgotten you. It doesn't mean God doesn't care. It actually means the opposite. It means God loves you and he's not giving it to you until you're ready to accept it. Because he knows what you can handle. See, the real test of faith is not prosperity. Sorry, the real test of faith is not poverty, but prosperity. It's not the lack of possessions or dreams of achievements. The real test of faith is prosperity. What do I mean by that? There was this instance when Jesus was preaching. And then suddenly he was interrupted by a guy who said, Teacher! tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Luke chapter 12. I mean, Jesus is in the middle of preaching and there's this guy with the audacity to interrupt him, just to ask him to divide the inheritance with him, with his older brother. See, in the, in the ancient Near East, when a father dies, majority of the inheritance goes, inheritance goes to the older sibling, to the eldest sibling and then he will be in charge of dividing the inheritance to the other siblings. So I'm speculating that this guy is the younger brother who has no authority to divide the inheritance and he's asking God now he's asking Jesus now to divide the inheritance. And I can speculate that this sounds like the prodigal son. I'm just speculating. Because the spe- the prodigal son is the younger son. Now Jesus responded to him very interestingly. And I think Jesus knew his heart. Jesus can read the hearts. Because Jesus was teaching about the kingdom. And there's this guy who came all the way from where he he came from. In the middle of the teaching, he interrupted Jesus because he has one agenda and one goal. It's not to listen to Jesus. It's to ask for his inheritance. You know, this is the story of the prodigal son. Asking for his inheritance so he, he can make use of it. Jesus gave him a perfect response. Luke chapter 12, verse 15. Jesus said, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in any abundance of possessions. Well, interesting how Jesus responded. I think he's, he's reading this guy perfectly. And because Jesus is generous, he told the parable. This is the parable from beginning verse 16. He said, the ground of a certain rich man, Yielded an abundant harvest. So I'm speculating here that this parable is talking about this man who wants his inheritance and is already rich. The ground man of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Ah, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. Are you reading the same thing? Surplus grain means he's got excess. I mean, in today's world, he's got money in the bank. And it's just money in the bank for this year. It says, and I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. I mean, this guy is rich already. This guy has got everything he needed for many years. And he's still thinking how to become richer. So he said, I'll say to myself, verse 19. You have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. If I say that today, if I interpret this today, I would say, eat, drink, be merry, and travel the world. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. I mean, who is this guy? This guy who thinks that his life is, is in his hands. Maybe he can multiply riches. But he has not really fully realized that it is God who is the source of all riches. You know, this guy, I think, is actually what Moses was talking about in Deuteronomy chapter 8. When he was writing his farewell address, he was talking to the people of Israel who was about to enter the promised land. And he's telling them, look guys, you will forget God. Be careful to remember God or else, look at this, verse 11. Deuteronomy 8, he said, Be careful that you do not forget your God. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build houses and settle down, when your herds and flocks grow large, and your silver and gold increase, and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud, and you will forget God. This is what Moses is telling this generation was about to enter the promised land. When you have everything you need and you are there, you will definitely forget God. Why? Because it's easy to forget. Verse 17, and you may say to yourself, My power, the strength of my hands, have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you the ability to produce wealth. You see, poverty doesn't make you forget God. Poverty can make you bitter and resentful and angry, but will not make you forget God. You know what will make you forget God? Prosperity, pleasure can make you forget God. See, the real test of faith is not poverty, but prosperity. It is pain. It's not pain, but pleasure. There's one guy in the Bible who is so rich beyond measure. His name is King Solomon. When he became king, there was no war because he tried to make peace with all the nations around him. This guy has got 300 wives and 700 concubines. I mean, anything that the guy wants in life, Solomon has got it. He was the richest guy in his time. He built palaces and anything that comes to his imagination. I mean, he's got everything the guy wants. But at the end of his life, he turned to idols. He forgot God. And he died. Why? Because it's easy to forget God. How do we make sure we don't forget God? When the Israelites made their final push, they had one more test. That is to cross the Jordan River. So going from the, from the east, I have to go to the west, They have to cross the Jordan River. It's not really that wide. It's a very narrow river, but I had to cross it. The only problem is that during the time that they're about to cross, it's at flood stage. It's swelling up. It's impossible to cross because the current is strong. Now, why is that? Why did God choose for them to cross the Jordan River during that time? There's one, re- one reason, one answer. Because God is not just making it difficult. God is making it impossible for them to cross so that they will know and understand that it is about God and not about them. That the only way they can cross is if God opens the door for them. You see, here's the logic. Canaan, the promised land, is owned by God. He owns the land. And the owner is the only one who can open the door for you. Correct? So the opening of the Jordan River is like God opening the door into the promised land. And without that door, without that owner opening that land, they cannot go in. It's impossible. So the people will understand that it's about God. It's not about them. So by entering the land, they will know that it's about God. See, but entering the land is not the end of it. All we think was, if I pray and my prayers are answered, that's the end of it. And, and people think also, the Israelites also were thinking, when we enter the land, that's the end of it. We'll, we'll be okay. Everything is settled. God has answered our prayers. But that's not the end of it. In fact. God wants them to remember something. So the moment the people crossed the Jordan River, God instructed that the Israelites, each one, takes a stone from the middle of the riverbed to be taken somewhere else in Gilgal to set up a monument, a memorial stone. This is in Joshua chapter 4. God said, Each of you is to take up a stone on a shoulder according to the number of the tribes of Israel to serve as a sign among you in the future. When your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. The stones are meant to become a memorial, a tangible object that they will always look back and say, God did something real. God did something impossible that we cannot do, but God did it. God did something for me that even in the future, when I look back, I will say, it's not about me, it's about God. This is the function of a memorial stone. Otherwise, Moses would say, otherwise, when you have plenty, when you have harvested your crops, when your silver and gold increased, when your herds grow and you are your prosperity has multiplied, you will forget God. The memorial stones will help them remember. Why? Because it's easy to forget. Now, to those of you who haven't heard my story, uh, I told this once to the church, but 15 years ago, I got robbed at gunpoint. It was back in the Philippines, and I never thought it would happen to me because it's just one block away from my house. I know it wasn't a punishment from God because that was Sunday. The morning that day, I preached from Habakkuk chapter 2. The title of my sermon was, Why Do the Righteous Suffer? And if I remember right, the opening of my sermon was, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. That night, I was robbed and I was shot. You know, I thought I got all figured out. I thought I gave a brilliant sermon. I thought I gave the answer to people who has needs until I realized that the sermon was really for me. God was talking to me. So I got shot in the face that night. If you come near me, from from there where you're sitting at, you will not notice, but if you come near, I have a scar in my left cheek. This is the bullet entrance. And then it is exited here. I fell right away. I got picked up. By a patrol car, brought me to the hospital straight to the operating table. They had to put a tracheostomy on my throat because I couldn't properly breathe. But there was no anesthesia, so I got operated without anesthesia. And I can hear the two doctors asking, "Where's the scalpel? Where's the scalpel? It's coming, doctor. It's coming, doctor." And I and I felt that scalpel in my throat, raw. And all I can think of while I was lying down was, man, this will hurt big time, but just in case I die, I know that I serve the Lord. I still have the the mark on my face. And every time I look at the mirror, every time I touch it, every time I see it, it serves as a memorial for me. And I wear it proudly. And that time I couldn't understand. I was like anybody asking asking God, why, why, does, why did this happen to me? I'm, I'm not really the bad guy here, but why did this happen to me? And there seems to be no logic, no adequate explanation, nothing that makes sense. Until I realized, it's not really about me. It's all about God. It's about God putting His mark on me to make sure that when the time comes, when I have plenty, when my silver and gold increase, when my herds grow large, I'll not forget God. I will tell. Myself, Norbert, you made it. You got it all made. I'm not going to do that because I know these cars will tell me it's all about God. See, this is my memorial. Question is, what is your memorial? What is it that you can look back into where you can say, this is the memorial of God's faithfulness in my life. This is what happened to me in this year, and God has rescued me from my trouble. What is it that, that tangible thing, that major thing that happened in your life that you can say, this is my memorial stones and I will thank God because of God's faithfulness. Here's what we're going to do today. What I want you to do is to think of one major thing in your life, one major answered prayer, one major miracle that happened in your life. And I believe that every one of us have one. Can you think of one? Right now, think of one. There's one thing that God did for you. That changed your life forever. It's what I want want you to do. I want you to take out your phones. Everyone has a phone? Take out your phones. Go to your calendar. This is November 26th. I want you to type in that major thing. That major prayer quest. That God answered you. One statement or one word that reminds you of your memorial stone. And I want you to make, to set it up with a recurring times. Every year it will recur. Every year it will remind you that this has been a memorial for you. So that every November 26, it will alarm in your phone. God has been good to me. Will you do that? I'm going to do it myself. You see, the stones, the 12 stones, was not just for decoration. There were uneven stones. There were imperfect stones. But the thing is, these stones serves as a memorial for something. It doesn't matter what kind of stones that you have. It's too personal. You don't even have to share. But every time you remember these stones, every time you remember this memorial, think of God and His faithfulness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today. Thank you for your faithfulness in our lives. Thank you that even in the midst of uncertainties, in the midst of difficulties, even though we're now in the middle of 40 years being humbled and tested, we know that this is for our good, for our preparation for something better in the future. Father, I pray that as you lead us, as you prepare us, as you discipline us as your children, I pray that you will help us to understand and appreciate that you love us, that you care for us, that you're not mean, that you're not making life difficult for us. But you love us and you know us better than we know ourselves. You know what we can handle. So you're giving us enough just for the day. That's our prayer, Lord, to give us this day, our daily bread, just for today. Not the bread for tomorrow, not the bread for Sunday, for the other week, but only for today. Because that today we will be satisfied in you. So that we will always ask for you. Father, help us to focus our eyes not on the things that shine, but on you, the giver of the things. Help us inspire our hearts. Encourage us, Father, that even in thanksgiving, we remember your faithfulness.